Let's pray. Forbid, Father, that any of us now would think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But help us to think with sober judgment as each has been measured a measure of faith. Help me to trust you in these next minutes. Help those of us who are gathered in this place now to trust you. If they're unbelievers, Lord, in our midst, I ask that you would grant them the gift of faith, that you would open their eyes to see the irresistible glory, beauty, truth of Jesus Christ. Now is the day of salvation. Lord, let us be a humble people. Let us be a self-forgetting people. Let us be a ministering people who pour our lives out for others. And would you get great glory? Would you be made much of in this church? Just come and glorify yourself, Lord Jesus, I pray. In your name, amen. If you are one of the hostages in Iraq, you've got on an orange suit, and there stand before you five hooded men, four of them with rifles and one of them with a knife. You might say, you might say out loud, mercy. Would you have mercy? And if you said that, you probably would not mean, I know I deserve to be beheaded in this way, but I, I don't ask you to treat me as I deserve, I ask for mercy. That's probably not what you would mean. You would mean, though you wouldn't say it probably, I don't deserve for you to cut off my head. I was just here. I was just doing my job. I'm on your side. Mercy. You would ask for mercy. You would think justice would get me out of here. But these fellows don't believe that. And therefore, I'm not going to appeal to that. I'm going to appeal to mercy. And you would say, mercy. Mercy, have mercy. How much more then, how much more, if you were standing in a courtroom, having committed a great crime, and the judge had found you guilty, and you were guilty, and you knew you were guilty, and there were no excuses, and justice would only send you to prison or to the electric chair, how much more then would you say to the court, is there any possibility of mercy? And if there proved to be mercy against all possibility, against all expectation, 
If in that moment when you know you're guilty, you know you deserve a lifetime in prison, and by some means you have no idea how, the judge let you go and not only said, you can go, but I will provide for your needs the rest of your life. You would walk out into perhaps a day like today and you would sing through many tears. You would sing through many tears. That's what mercy does. It makes you cry with joy. Nobody has ever been shown mercy at a moment like that who didn't tear up. If they didn't tear up, they didn't know what mercy was. That's the kind of people Paul is addressing in verse 1 of this text. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. You see that word mercies? I'm backing up to do some review here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He means all I have written from chapters 1 to 11 of Romans can be summed up as a display of the mercies of God. The mercies of God in Romans 1 to 11, especially in Romans 3, the mercies of God satisfied the justice of God in the death of the Son of God. Justice would have brought us to ruin in judgment. Christ is put between, absorbs the just wrath of God. We are reckoned righteous, all our sins forgiven, no condemnation now in Christ Jesus. We walk out of the courtroom of the universe with the judge of the universe saying, not only do I not condemn you, I give you my son as your companion for the rest of your eternity so that he will meet your needs and enable you to live a mercy-dependent, mercy-loving, mercy-exalting life for the rest of your days forever and ever. That's chapters 1 to 11. And now he says, by those mercies, I'm going to write some things to you. By those mercies, I'm going to call you to live a certain Way. So the point of that first verse is all of chapter 12, with its dozens, and on into 13, there are dozens of exhortations and commandments. All of it flows from the mercy of God through hearts broken by mercy and made happy in Jesus. That's the only way these things can come to pass. So don't treat Romans 12 as a list of behaviors by which you gain the favor of God. The favor of God is free. You cannot earn it by any biblical behavior. It is free. You can only Treasure it or reject it. Those are your two options. There are no others. You can reject it or treasure it above all things. This chapter 
is a description of the lifestyle of mercy-loving, mercy-dependent, Christ-treasuring, broken-heartedly happy people. That's what chapter 12 is. That's why he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God, live this way. And the first thing concretely that he tells us changes is the view of ourselves. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. The first thing that changes as you walk out of the courtroom saying, I can't believe I'm free. I deserved everything evil. I've been acquitted. The judge came around, gave me a big hug, told me his son would be with me omnipotently meeting every need I have for the rest of my days. The first thing that changes is I stop thinking highly of myself. That's what it says. This is the mark of the new mind described in verse 2. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind. In what way? First and foremost, don't think of yourself highly anymore. There's no condemnation. You may go free. I've adopted you into my everlasting family. My son will go with you to the end of the age, and he will help you to be a mercy-treasuring, humble, hope-filled heir of all that I am for you as God. Humility and lowliness mark the lover of mercy. Now, the opposite of pride in this verse is maybe not what you think it is. Let's read the rest of verse 3. But, instead of thinking too highly of yourself, to think with sober judgment, each, in other words, to think with sober judgment about yourself. Don't think of yourself too highly. Think with sober judgment about yourself. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And he means faith in Christ. In other words, the true measure of yourself is your measure of Christ. Think of yourself according to the measure of your faith in Christ, Paul says. Yourself accords with your faith. Self is defined as faith in Christ. Faith is a looking away from self. This is the paradox of the self awareness of the Christian. We are measured in ourself by our measure of faith, and faith does not look in a mirror. It looks through a mirror to Christ and is caught out of itself to love Christ, to treasure Christ. And so I said some weeks ago, you may remember, if Christ is more to you, you are more. If Christ is less to you, you are less. Your measure rises and your measure falls with your measure of Him. 
your valuing of Him is the value you are. And I'll stand by that totally now as well as when I first preached it. This means that Christian humility is a kind of self-forgetfulness produced by treasuring Christ. The Christian alternative to thinking too highly of ourselves is mainly thinking highly of Christ, not mainly thinking condemning thoughts about ourselves. There's plenty in me to condemn. Preoccupation with that produces either despair, or if I can deceive myself, pride. Pride and despair are both forms of unbelief. Therefore, the alternative to pride in the Christian life is not mainly self-condemnation, though that has its place, but mainly high esteem for Jesus, a heart that is caught out of itself in treasuring a treasure that is so valuable we don't have time or inclination for mirrors. We just want more of the sunrise and the sunset of the glory of Christ. Take away the mirrors of my house and give me glory. That's what humility says. It just forgets itself. It's a miracle. So, the triumph of humility in the Christian life is turning away from self and treasuring Christ. Now, here we are at verses 7 and 8, and you may wonder why in the world are you spending so much time on rehearsing what we've heard already when you're supposed to be speaking on the spiritual gifts in verses 7 and 8. We've already dealt with the gift of prophecy in one whole message, and now we have six more to do. And I think as I've prepared that I will do two messages on these six, one this weekend and one probably, God willing, next weekend. Now the reason I have spent so much time on humility and not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think is that I am persuaded that verses 7 and 8 are meant by the Apostle Paul to be read through the lens of verse 3 and the lens of not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but looking at them through the lens of self-forgetful treasuring of Christ. He means for us to do our gifts with a mercy-loving, mercy-dependent, mercy-exalting treasuring of Christ. Gifts are to flow out of that, or they won't be what they ought to be. I believe that's the case. Now, why do I believe that? What drives me to that? You have to notice something here, and you can't notice it uh, unless you have a version that is so literal it puts added words in italics. But I will point out to you that there is no main verb in the sentence running from verse 6 through 7 and 8. It's all one sentence, and there's no verb in it, no main verb in it. It has to be supplied. So the translators are not doing a bad thing. All the translators are relatively good here, I think. Um, but I would add something. 
Let me point out what they add and have to add. This is not a, a penalty. Paul expects us to add this. Start at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, the next words, let us use them, that's added. That's not in the original. You have to just add something there. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. And then it just says, if prophecy. And you have to add a verb. And you have to decide from context, well, what, what is he saying? And almost all the versions add, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, understand, let us use it in our serving. The one who teaches, understand, let's use it in his teaching. The one who exhorts, understand, let him use it in his exhortation. The one who contributes, understand, let him use it in generosity. The one who leads, understand, let him use it with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, understand, let him do acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You have to add these verbs because they're not there, and Paul expects us to be able to add them. Now, here's the problem I have with the way the ESV and almost all other translations do it. Saying, let us use them, seems to create in, in verse 7 nothingness. It just seems to create pointlessness. Let me read verse 7. If service, if that's your gift, use it in your serving. I'm going to ask, where else? You know? The one who teaches, let him use it in his teaching. It just seems pointless. Of course, you know. The one who exhorts, let him use it in his exhortation. I mean, it's just, why say that? Where else can you use your gift of teaching except in teaching? Where else can you use your gift of exhorting except in exhorting? I mean, just, it just seems empty. It seems pointless if that's the verb you're going to supply. So here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that we simply add the word humbly to what's there. Use them humbly. Use them out of a mercy-dependent, mercy-loving, Christ-treasuring humility. I think the, the point from verse 1 right on through to verse 8 has been depend on mercy and be lowly. Depend on mercy and be lowly. That's the point right on through this whole text. And he's saying, you're going to use the gifts? So here's my uh, paraphrase. Starting at verse 6 again, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them humbly. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service, let us use it with mercy-dependent humility in our serving. The one who teaches, let him use his teaching gift with mercy-dependent humility in his teaching. The one who exhorts, let him exhort with mercy-dependent humility in his exhortation. The one who contributes, let him contribute with mercy-dependent humility and thus do it with generosity. The one who leads, let him lead with mercy-dependent humility and thus lead with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, let him show mercy with mercy-dependent humility and thus with cheerfulness. I think the point is, look at the gifts through the lens of mercy-dependent, mercy-cherishing dependence on Christ. Now, let me give you two reasons 
why I think this makes so much sense out of the passage and is called for by the very way the gifts are listed. Okay? Number one, notice all these gifts imply someone is on the receiving end. Look at verse 7. If someone is serving, someone is in need of service. If someone is teaching, someone knows less and is being taught. Verse 8. If someone is exhorting, someone needs exhortation. If someone is contributing, someone is in need. If someone is leading, someone is being led. If someone is showing mercy, Someone is hurting and in need of mercy. And I hope you see immediately the danger of pride. The need for humility in the setup of the church, the way God has planned it, with a diversity of gifts and needs, the need for humility is absolutely huge. Humility to give without pride and humility to receive without self-pity. God has willed, so plain here in this whole paragraph, God has willed that there be diversity in the body of Christ, even diversity of spiritual temperatures, diversities of faith we saw. Different measures of faith. God wills that there be in the church diversity of gifts, diversity of faith, diversity of need for exhortation, therefore diversities of relative sinfulness. And that creates a very great potential and a great, very great danger. The potential is this, and I think this is the reason, the reason God does it. If Christ can be beautiful enough, valuable enough, magnificent enough to pull together this kind of diversity and more, he must be very great. Because if we were all the same and we found our unity in him, nobody would say, wow, Jesus pulled off something great. That would not be great. Pulling off unity in diversity of all kinds, ethnic diversity, spiritual temperature diversity, gift diversity, educational diversity, socioeconomic diversity. If Christ can pull that off, He shines. If people can value Him so much that they overlook the things that are prickly to them and they come together in Him, He must be great. But if everybody is cookie cutter and you've got unity, big deal. So much for Jesus. That takes no big value, nothing to pull such a group together. So my sense is that the reason God wills this diversity is for the glory of Christ as he makes it happen, unity. And now the danger is all these people just described are in positions of giving it looks like, right? The one who serves, he's got something to serve with. 
The one who teaches, he's got some knowledge. The one who exhorts, presumes he knows something worth exhorting. The one who contributes, got money. The one who leads, got skills of leadership. The one who shows mercy, has got resources that another needs. This is major Pridesville. I will meet your need. I'll give you an exhortation. I'll provide in your poverty because I'm wealthy and Therefore, therefore, you can see why I think he's not just saying, let's use them. He's saying, as the theme of the paragraph continues from verse 1 through verse 3 into the body life of verses 4 and 5, he's saying, let's use them humbly. Let's be aware of the dangers of self-pity on the receiving end, the dangers of pride on the giving end. Oh, don't Think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Serve one another in all lowliness. Count one another better than yourselves. Unless you become the servant of all, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He who would be great must become the slave of all. We've just got all the echoes here of Jesus. That's the first reason I think we should paraphrase it you got a gift, use it humbly in mercy-dependent, mercy-loving, mercy-exalting treasuring of Jesus. One more point. The second reason why the focus on humility is so crucial in this list of gifts It's that Christian humility is a self-forgetting happiness in Christ. A self-forgetting, treasuring of happiness in Christ. Remember, humility is not mainly thinking bad thoughts about yourself. There are plenty of reasons for that, but that doesn't produce ministry, does it? If you stay at home and think of how bad you are, and that's all you think, you will not do ministry. You won't love anybody. You'll just soak in in your pain and your misery. So humility, as the Bible understands it, overflowing in spiritual gifts and love, cannot be mainly, decisively thinking bad thoughts about yourself. Start there for sure. We're bad. But it's got to break forth as, as you walk out of the courtroom as you walk out of the courtroom with that word breaking over you, not guilty, you've got to sing to this Jesus. You've got to be the freest of all people. You've got to be a mercy-loving, mercy-dependent, Christ-treasuring, humble, broken-hearted, bold person. And that's the kind of humility. It's a kind of forgetfulness that becomes lavish in its love, which I think explains why Halfway through this list, Paul switches gears. You noticed it, perhaps. He breaks off his pattern. In the last part, in verse 8, he does not say, as he had been saying, the one who contributes in his contributing. 
The one who leads in his leading. The one who acts of mercy, does acts of mercy in his acts of mercy. He does not say that. That's what he had been saying. Serving and serving, exhorting and exhorting, teaching and teaching. Why not here? Why does he break the pattern halfway through and instead write, as you see there in verse 8, the one who contributes in generosity? starts to talk about the spirit and the quality and the attitude, not just the sphere of the ministry. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Well, what comes out of those three statements is that God really cares about how we use our gifts. The spirit, the attitude. Not just give. Now you've done your duty. Lead. Now you've done your duty. Show mercy. Now you've done your duty. That's not what God is interested in. What matters to God is free, lavish generosity in giving. What matters to God is passion and eagerness and zeal in leading. What matters to God is gladness, cheerfulness, and joy in mercy. Is not that amazing? Not just do your thing. God cares about the spirit and the motive with which we do mercy. Not just social do-gooders for the poor. Not just effective, efficient managerial leadership. And not just give. In other words, this, this is a getting inside of the one who has a gift and saying, now come on. If God is to be pleased, he loves a cheerful giver. That's a paraphrase of the last one there from 2 Corinthians. He who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God loves a cheerful giver. Same thing, same point. First in Romans, then in 2 Corinthians. God is about what goes on in the soul when it comes to us exercising our gifts. And my point is real simple. I think mercy-dependent, mercy-cherishing, Christ-treasuring humility acts like that. And only mercy-cherishing humility acts like that. In other words, the reason I've got to to pull down humility from verse 3 into verse 8 is because verse 8 won't happen without verse 3. It won't happen. John Piper will not lead with Christ-exalting, mercy-dependent zeal. It'll all become about me if verse 3 doesn't get into verse 8. And so many of you are lavish, disciplined, proportionate givers. Praise God for you. You can't do a four or five million dollar budget plus a ten million dollar treasure in Christ together if you don't have a lot of people like those who contribute with generosity. But what God wants from us is not the disciplined writing of the check. He wants a heart that is so caught up in mercy, so 
stunned at the verdict, not guilty. My son will go with you. He'll meet all your needs in your business, all your needs in your marriage, all your needs in school. He'll go with you to the end of the age. Be the freest, happiest, humblest, boldest people in the world. And then we give with generosity. Humility has to be brought in here because these three gifts show that God is interested in the way we do them, not just that we do them. So I close now with a word to us here at Bethlehem. Isn't that what we need? Isn't this mercy, cherishing, mercy-dependent, Christ-treasuring humility what Bethlehem needs? And isn't it what the world needs? I don't think the world just needs more philanthropists more savvy, swaggering leaders, more do-gooders for the poor. It's not what the world needs. The world needs a kind of philanthropist and a kind of leader and a kind of lover of the poor. And the quality that the world needs, Paul says, is not just discipline, get it done. Rather, it is humble, brokenhearted, Christ-dependent, Christ-exalting, mercy-loving, just diving into the ocean of God's mercy so that philanthropists can't help themselves. They just love to give and give and give because so much has been given undeservingly to them. And leaders, leaders are servants. They just get down under the people and want by any means to lift them up. Don't want to be made much of. They want the people to make much of Jesus because they're so dependent on his mercy, so satisfied with his value, so treasuring of his Grace and lovers of the poor, those who do mercy, nothing could make them happier than to go to the poor, to go to the needy, to reach out to the hurting. We don't need more do-gooders. We don't need liberal social gospel. We need biblical gospel that damns people, saves people, humbles people, and thrills people with Jesus Christ. And then sets them free to love the world like that. So the reason I think we need to get verse 3 with all of its call to lowliness and not thinking of ourselves too highly down into verse 8 is because Christ-exalting humility unleashes that kind of self-forgetful joy that just gives and gives and leads as a servant and loves the poor and is the happiest people in the world even as they die for Jesus. So, Bethlehem, let's be that way because when you're that way, guess who gets the glory and guess who gets the joy? God gets the glory, 
you get the joy, it's the best of all possible fallen worlds. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much more to say about these six gifts. All I've done is try to talk a little bit about the spirit of the gifts. And I ask now that that spirit would be our spirit at Bethlehem and that we would spread it to one another as we welcome people in and we'd spread it like a spillover to the world. They don't just need philanthropists. They don't just need leaders. They don't just need do-gooders. They need people because of Christ who are lavish, who are zealous, who are cheerful as they exalt Jesus Christ in all their lives. Make us that kind of people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.